Today I want to talk about the Chechens, both in and out of Ukraine. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company Conductor. So this episode, which might turn out to be a rather short one, was triggered by a spat between everyone's favourite monsters, Evgeny Prigozhin of Wagner and Ramzan Kadyrov of Chechnya. What happened was that on the 31st of May, Prigozhin, in response to certain suggestions, made his view known that he didn't think that the Chechen Akhmat Battalion Special Forces Unit could hold all of the contested Donbass region. I mean, in fairness, he said that it could hold some locations, but not the whole of the Donbass. Now, if I may use a phrase that I never imagined I would ever say, I agree with Yevgeny Prigozhin. The Akhmat Battalion, I'll talk a little bit more about its strength later, but even if we are erring on the side of generosity, there are about 3,000 troops we're talking about. Now, the Donbass, the whole of the Donbass region, which is what he's talking about, is 9,000 square miles. Now, all of Chechnya comprises 6,700 square miles, and it is actually controlled by a much, much larger force of Kadyrovtsi, various security forces loyal to Kadyrov, and is not the subject of a current high-intensity war. So this would seem to be a fairly reasonable statement from this usually most unreasonable of men. Uh, But then again, he's now butting heads with... Another particular flavour of unreasonableness. Kadyrov was reportedly furious, and, well, this obviously meant that there was room for his various mouthpieces and minions. Enter, first of all, Adam Delimkhanov. Now, he's the senator. He represents Chechnya to the Federation Council. Also, the so-called man with the golden gun, which sounds a lot more exciting than it really is. He has a a gold-plated Makarov pistol that he was presented. But also, just to give a sense of the kind of chap he is, he's convincingly or plausibly accused of the murder of one of a member of a rival family. This was Sulim Yamadaev in the United Arab Emirates in 2009, and to the best of my knowledge, is still the subject of an Interpol arrest warrant. And this is a chap who, back in 2022, shared a video on Instagram, which seems to be one of the, the social media outlets of choice for the Chechens, threatening a particular human rights lawyer and his family, classily enough, saying, we will come after you until we cut off your heads and kill you. And I I liked the precision that was uh, present in actually pointing out that uh, they'll also be killing them as well as cutting off their heads. Anyway, Adam Delmikhanov rather sort of furiously turned on Prigozhin with, again, a public social media post in which he said, you've become a blogger who screams and shouts at the whole world, which again, in fairness, is not entirely untrue. Stop shouting, yelling and screaming. 
you don't know about our capabilities or goals. Well, that told him. But then we had the Speaker of the Chechen Parliament, one Magomed Daudov, on whom Kadyrov notoriously placed the subriquet Lord, because apparently the first time he met Kadyrov, who we should remember, after all, famously or, or infamously, the first time he met Putin, was just simply wearing a tracksuit. But anyway, when Lord turns up in his... When, sorry, when Daudov turns up in a, a black and white suit, looking very elegant, Kadyrov said that he looks like an English Lord, and hence the name stuck. Now, he is very much Ramzan's right-hand man, and that hand is very often clinched in a fist. And certainly in this case, he was, as usual, not in conciliatory mood, warning Prigozhin that his open discussion of the problems facing the military were not helpful, and adding, for such words during the Second World War, you would have been immediately put up against a wall, and presumably by implication shot. Well, Prigozhin had his own defenders. We had particularly Dmitry Utkin, the man who was essentially the first operational commander of Wagner and who gave it its code name. I always love the sort of rather coy explanation that uh, he did so because Dmitry Utkin's own code word was Wagner because of his appreciation of the Nazi aesthetic. Anyway, Utkin struck back, basically, particularly sort of expressing fury at the discourteous tone with which Prigozhin was being treated. Because after all, as we know, Prigozhin himself is very, very hot on correct etiquette. But then we had Prigozhin himself saying that he had you know, basically sorted things out. He, In his own words, I got a call from Ramzan. We talked and agreed that we put a lid on the whole story. The conflict is settled. It's quite interesting. He makes the point that he got a call from Kadyrov. He's making the point that Kadyrov was the one who really want, wanted to end it. I mean, that may or may not be true, but there is still a certain degree of that kind of, kind of rather crass, uh, quote-unquote, alpha male jostling there. Anyway, so what can we actually learn from this particularly unedifying exchange? Well, first of all, I think it really does emphasise the degree to which Prigozhin and Kadyrov are not real allies, despite the fact that, first of all, sort of some observers, particularly observers outside Russia, made a big play of this. Instead, it's just simply that they often have congruent interests, and in some ways they both have a rather outspoken populist style. Now, for example, I mean, back in September of 2022, Kadyrov and Prigozhin were both attacking Shoigu, the defence ministry, and Chief of the General Staff Kadyrov. And this is what seems to have generated a lot of the loose talk about an alliance. But as I said, the interesting thing was Prigozhin was making an attack and Kadyrov was really looking to piggyback on it. There was never any sense of any kind of real reciprocity there. Now, since then, I mean, the Institute for the Study of War has suggested that the, this particular spat was something that the Kremlin orchestrated as part of a plot to undermine Prigozhin. But honestly, I don't buy that. Firstly, because in fact, it ends up with Prigozhin looking stronger and Kadyrov looking weaker because of the way it seems to be that Kadyrov was the one who was seeking peace. Secondly, look, I mean, there is just no evidence to, to back that up and certainly no evidence that the Kremlin uses Kadyrov in that kind of way. This, for me, is just a case of two conflict entrepreneurs butting heads. Kadyrov, in many ways, had been quite jealous, it's clear that, of that, of Prigozhin's, not just his successes on the battlefield, but his capacity to leverage that 
into this persona as the thuggish yet tough, no-nonsense to the point of view of absolute ruthlessness, man of action on, on the battlefield. Kadyrov every now and then had claimed that, that he's been there in, in Ukraine and such like, but frankly, we have no real evidence of that and it's hard to take seriously. So I think from from Kadira's point of view, you know, he he was basically angry at this. He doesn't want to put, and I'll talk about this in a moment, much of his own skin in the game. But on the other hand, when he spots something that he thinks of as a slight on his forces in Ukraine, and by extension him, then he will push back. Unfortunately, in Prigozhin, he was facing a rather different type of antagonist. So... Let's not assume that just because there are times when figures like Prigozhin and Kadyrov have the same target, that they are in many ways of the same camp. Quite the opposite. In many ways, they are competing with each other. They are competing with each other for the role of A, the kind of most outspoken guardian, defender, advocate of Russian national power, and also as the scarecrow, the person who is willing to articulate the most preposterously extreme positions. I mean, let's not forget we've had Prigozhin suggesting that really Russia needs to become like North Korea to win, although that may have been tongue-in-cheek. And certainly not tongue-in-cheek, we've had in February, as I recall, Kadyrov suggesting that really Russia ought also to invade Poland and denazify that. You know, these are not actual serious policy positions. But in part, they are precisely to position themselves, the, the individuals in, in question, as being both irreproachable in their advocacy of state interests, but also impossible to outflank. So in this respect, actually, given they are in their own ways occupying a similar niche, certainly when it comes to Kremlin politics, no wonder we can expect them to compete. Second broad point is about What's actually going on in the conflict, in the war in, in Ukraine, when it comes to the Chechens? Now, it's often said, again, in the less expert media, that Kadyrov, like Prigozhin, is a key figure in the war effort. But I really doubt that. And to an extent, I think this is actually the result of the fact that Kadyrov, for all his simplicity and other matters, is actually quite assiduous and effective in his positioning of himself and of Chechnya through social media and other forms of narrative. What have we actually got that the Chechens have deployed into Ukraine? There are, of course, elements of the so-called Kadyrovtsi, who are now rolled within Rosgvardia, the Russian National Guard, even though, and I'll talk about this in a minute, their chain of command essentially leads through Grozny rather than anywhere else. The main element is the so-called Akhmat Special Forces Battalion, which is, I mean, it's named after Akhmat Kadyrov, Ramzan's deceased father. And look, even if we accept that it's a reinforced battalion, it's unlikely to have much more than a thousand soldiers. There's also the so-called Sevier Akhmat, North Akhmat Special Purpose Regiment. But again, although it's a regiment, First of all, there's no evidence that it's anywhere near full regimental strength. And secondly, perhaps more to the point, I have yet to see any kind of serious evidence to suggest that the entire regiment has been deployed to Ukraine. We've had stuff coming out of Chechnya, which shows you know the regiment being mustered and, and Kadyrov waving them away on, on, onto Ukraine. But in terms of actual evidence that they are in theatre, 
that's distinctly uncertain. So look, all told, I mean, I would reckon that we're probably talking about maybe 3,000 Chechen troops in Ukraine, which is, I don't know, maybe a brigade strength. Certainly it is only a tiny fraction of the overall Russian forces there, or even frankly not a particularly big fraction of the Roskvardia troops there. But nonetheless, we get a lot of sound and fury on social media about their activities. But what have they really been doing? Well, look, it's clear that they definitely played a role in the very, very early stages of the invasion, where they were sent into or towards Kiev with an idea of essentially being used to quite possibly decapitate the Ukrainian leadership. I'm not entirely sure if I mean that literally or not. And also beyond that, as a, a terror slash mopping up force. The idea being, after all, that, you know, as we all knew, Ukraine was going to fall quickly and neatly into the Russian hands. Nonetheless, there would presumably still be pockets of resistance. And the thing about the Chechens is not just that they can be unleashed against the civilian population, but that precisely they have a terrifying reputation, which the, presumably, and I'm guessing here, the hope was that that would act as a, a deterrent. Of course, the battle did not exactly go the way Putin had planned. Quite the opposite. It turned into a nasty conflict against an exceedingly determined enemy. And at a very early stage, the Chechens who are coming in from, from the north as part of that initial invasion sort of strike towards Kiev suffered very heavy losses near to a town called Hostomel. At that point... Kadyrov seems to have basically pulled them back from the front line. And again, I would stress, they do what Kadyrov tells them, not what their notional commanders do. Anyway, from that point on, Kadyrov was exceedingly solicitous of his men. After all, remember that the Kadyrovsi are absolutely crucial to his maintenance of power within Chechnya. Chechnya is a thuggish and brutal police state with a, an overlay of Sharia law and a certain degree of patronal politics as a, a fraction of the amount of money that is pouring into the hands of Kadyrov and his cronies does head out in, 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 into other hands. But he needs these Kadyrovsi. They are really the fundamental building block of, of his system and his survival. And also they are part of his dowry to, to Moscow his capacity to from time, from time to time send these guys. They, for example, were deployed, or some of them, were deployed to Syria in the guise of military police. I mean, the idea was that, oh, no, no, these, these are just Chechen military police who will be able to therefore talk to the Syrians in their own language, understand their culture, be co-religionists and the like. Well, there are no all Chechen military police units. These were just Kadyrovtsi who had exchanged their Roskvardia uniforms for military police ones. That's all. But again, that was part of the deal that Kadyrov had with Moscow. So he needs these guys. He doesn't want to waste them. He's not that interested in putting them into the real meat grinders. For example, I mean, there were claims that they pay, played a particularly important role in Mariupol, which was absolutely a meat grinder. But the point is that when one looks at how they're being appraised by Russian military sources and by a certain number of the more candid military correspondents, the Voyankori, on social media, it is clear that there is a strong sense of exasperation, a sense that basically these guys are much, much more interested in filming video of themselves doing dramatic things to be put on social media than they are in actual fighting.
Back in October, for example, uh, Ramzan Kadyrov said that in the recent engagements they had suffered 23 dead and 58 wounded. Which is interesting because the sad truth of the matter is that from the point of view of casualties to Russian units facing proper full-on warfare with the Ukrainians, that's not really the kind of figures that you bother announcing. They're really not that great. But clearly, from, from Kadira's point of view, it was a big deal. And that suggests that the overall Russian perspective, that the Chechens are either killers, murderers, I would say, in, in some ways, in other words, being deployed against targets that can't fight back, or poseurs, rather than actually fighters, it's definitely still holds true. What's the third point that really one, one can learn from this overall kerfuffle? Well, I think it is precisely that Chechnya and, and Kadyrov are still pretty much autonomous within the Russian system. Even as we see attempts to turn this slightly sort of postmodern mix of authoritarianism with a bit of popular participation into a good old-fashioned authoritarianism, well, Chechnya still remains a special case. We can see that certainly in the chain of command in Ukraine. I mean, as I've indicated, technically speaking, the Kadyrovtsi that are in Ukraine are part of Roskvardia, the National Guard. Now, that already throws a particular complexity in, because although Roskvardia forces in the war are meant to be subordinated to the overall Joint Forces Commander, which is Chief of the General Staff, General Gerasimov, at the moment, in practice it has become clear that... It's one thing when relatively straightforward orders come down the line, but where there are major ones, or where, maybe I'm being over-cynical here, but the local Roskvardia commanders really don't like those orders and are hoping that they'll be countermanded, they clearly do check in with General Zolotov, their overall commander in Moscow, and just basically get some kind of a sign-off. So already the Roskvardia are a kind of semi-detached element of the Russian forces, and within the Roskvardia, the Chechens clearly have their own chain of command going back to Grozny. So in other words, if Gerasimov wants them to do anything, whether or not he can do so depends entirely on whether or not Kadyrov is happy for that eye. And in the main, Kadyrov seems perfectly willing to say no if it would put his, his little babies in harm's way. So that's the situation on the ground, and that is really just a reflection of what's happening at home. And again, this is a wider point, actually. I, I, if you'll excuse me, I just want to dwell on for a moment. The mess that is the Russian chain of command in Ukraine is a direct reflection and result of the political system itself. Putin created this political system, this adhocracy, based precisely on divide and rule, on individuals and institutions with overlapping and competing remits, on encouraging rivalries rather than creating sensible structures. And that works very, very well if you're just simply trying to use divide and rule to keep uh, an opportunistic elite squabbling amongst themselves so that you remain the central pivotal figure. Export that to the battlefield, though, and it is proving to be pretty catastrophic. So in this respect, we shouldn't be surprised that the Chechens are essentially an autonomous and self-interested force on the battlefield because they are an autonomous and self-interested force within the entire Putin system. Remember, the deal that was struck to, in effect, end the Second Chechen War, which was done to a large extent by Chechenizing it, by enlisting Chechens 
in support of the federal cause, Chechens who could basically take on the Chechen rebels on an even footing, was precisely to give the Kadyrov, might become, become the Kadyrov dynasty, now that Kadyrov's teenage son has been formally presented in front of the cameras to Putin, who can tell? But anyway, the point is the Kadyrovs were granted not just essentially carte blanche as to what they did within their republic, but also, if I can continue to mix my metaphors, a blank check. 80 to 90 percent of Chechnya's budget, Chechnya's republican budget, actually is provided from the federal budget. So in other words, it is a gift from Moscow. What's more, something like 40% of the entire Chechen GDP is made up for by so-called the budget sector, the budgetniki, people who are essentially civil servants in one form or another. They could be soldiers, they could be teachers, whatever, and who are therefore paid out of the federal budget. And over one third of all the economically active population of Chechnya is employed directly or indirectly by the government that is in turn almost entirely bankrolled by Moscow and yet without any real control from Moscow. If one looks at the usual control mechanisms whereby the centre keeps regions in check, it is first of all control over the budget. But the point is, well, as I'll come to, every time the Russians even hint at that, Kadyrov calls their bluff. Or else it's through the use of various control mechanisms, apparatuses like the Federal Security Service, the FSB, the Investigatory Committee, the police and such like. Well, in Chechnya, all of those have essentially been tamed and or Chechenified. Although that need not mean Chechenified in terms of nationality. For example, since 2020, the head of the Chechen Federal Security Service, FSB, has been Igor Kochnev, who was previously the FSB chief in the Siberian region of Tumen. Well, that sounds like he's an outsider, someone who could actually be relied on to keep an eye on what's going on in Chechnya for Moscow's purposes. Not necessarily. But let's have a break. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counterterrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. Like any despot, Kadyrov has wanted to squeeze out any kind of constraints, checks and balances to his rule. The local interior ministry is technically a part of the All-Russian Federation ministry, but in practice everyone knows that the orders do not come from Moscow. Likewise, the Kadyrovtsi are not just within the Roskvardia, they represent all of the Roskvardia within Chechnya, so there's no separate force of leg breakers at Moscow's control. Kadyrov made a point of squeezing out military intelligence, the GRU, which after all had tried for as long as possible to maintain a sort of counterweight, particularly through the aforementioned Yamadaevs. And Kadyrov methodically had their key figures forced into exile, killed, or, in most cases, both. 
Even the investigatory committee has been really, I would say again, house trained, as has the FSB. To a degree, this goes back to 2007. Then the FSB had actually refused to allow an armed group of Kadyrovtsi into their headquarters. And how had uh, Kadyrov responded? He responded by welding all the doors to the FSB headquarters in Grozny shut. Talk about imposing a siege. It then actually required the efforts of the, at the time, head of the FSB, Nikolai Patrushev, now Security Council Secretary, to broker some kind of a deal. But nonetheless, that deal ensured that from that, that point on, Kadyrov would have a veto on whoever would get appointed to its chief. And so we come back to Igor Kochnev. Yes, he's not a Chechen. He's never been in Chechnya. He comes from the oil-producing region of Tumen. And that's the point, the oil-producing region of Tumen. Because apparently, so I've been told, Kochnev also has something of an axe to grind with Igor Sechin, the infamously powerful and uh, infamously unpleasant head of Rosneft. And back in 2018, it was a mark, I would suggest, of Kadyrov's strength that he and his clan even managed to, to beat off Sechin's attempts and ensure that the oil company Chechenneftek Improm Wow, I'm surprised I managed to get through that. Anyway, ownership was shifted from federal ownership, which in practice meant to a large degree Sechin's control, into ownership by the Chechen federal Chechen Republican authorities. So they actually managed to snatch an oil company away from Sechin. And the word is that Kochnev played some role in that. Now, I would love to know what and... Frankly, I could probably make up what it was. I don't know. There, again, there's been suggestions that he sort of passed uh, the Chechens some information that was then embarrassing for Sechin or whatever. But I honestly don't know about that. But what it does mean is that, in other words, this person already seems to have had some kind of a relationship with the Chechens and been deemed to be a useful ally. So, yes, he's an outsider on one level, but one can question how far he really is. And this is part of an overall process we've seen of, in effect, nationalising all sorts of resources within Chechnya into the hands of the Chechen Republican state, which basically means Kadyrov, or into the hands, of, more directly, of people who are Kadyrov's allies, proxies, and so-called wallets. I mean, if one looks, for example, at, oh my god, I just realised I've set myself up to have to say it again, Chechen Neftekimprom, it was placed under the control of Khosbaudi Alviev, who is one of definitely Sir Ramzan Kadyrov's so-called wallets, and along with his brother, is in charge of a wide range of major projects. So this is the how Kadyrov operates. First of all, he expresses fulsome and complete loyalty to Putin and to the Russian state. Highly performative, in many ways terribly stylized, but nonetheless that sort of sets the overall tone. At the same time though, he also, and this is in, in, in some ways reflecting his own character, but also in some ways reflecting uh, something he can produce of value for Putin, is to precisely act as one of these scarecrows who can say the really extreme things that allows Putin to look like the mature and balanced man of judgment, and also to 
implicitly to give that sense of don't push me too far because if you did anything to destabilize my regime look at the monsters who are waiting in the wings so in in that respect again it is part of the political positioning of the kremlin but thirdly and perhaps most crucially kadyrov sets out to exploit the russian state and that doesn't just simply mean in terms of the financial resources a huge portion of which goes to Kadyrov directly, both to maintain his rather elevated quality of life. This is, after all, a man who has his own zoo, one of only 20 Lamborghini Reventons ever produced in the world. And in quite entertainingly for me, in 2022, he was videoed wearing military camo, playing up his full tough guy line in $1,500 Prada boots. But beyond that, also a lot go into his vanity projects and more to the point, just simply in ensuring he buys the loyalty of his Kadyrovci, the members of his elite and such like. You know, so the money is absolutely central to his political power. But it's not just that. It's also that, in fact, Moscow gives him, in effect, cover to c carry out whatever brutalities and abuses he wants without having to worry about the international community and international law and such like. Moscow gives him authority. He can go gallivanting around the Muslim world, in effect acting not just simply as a representative of a small impoverished territory, but as a representative of the entire Russian Federation. So, you know, for all these reasons, plus the fact that ultimately Moscow will be act as the backstop to protect his rule, this is all very good for him. And at the same time, any time that it looks as if Moscow is reconsidering the terms of the deal, even in the smallest levels, and much of the time, let's be perfectly honest, this relates to funding and a desire to try and cut down on the amount of money that is being, as many in Moscow would think, wasted in Chechnya, well, Ramzan threatens them. He, I mean, sometimes he, he picks a fight, such as uh, with Ingushetia over territory. He's done that in the past. More often, though, he just simply muses about the possibility of giving up the job, perhaps becoming just an ordinary soldier, as if he really would. And this terrifies Moscow, because they have convinced themselves, wrongly I would say, but uh, they didn't ask me, convinced themselves that without Ramzan Kadyrov, Chechnya risks falling into yet further anarchy and rebellion, and they're going to be sucked into a third Chechen war, which especially now is something that they can't even conceive of, let alone fight. So every time he does that, it's Moscow that gives in. So this is the situation. He expresses loyalty. He speaks the unthinkable. He exploits Moscow and he covertly threatens it. And in some ways we are seeing all of these elements of the wider picture being played out on the Ukrainian battlefield. That he says that he's ready to basically, he and his men, they would win the war with their own methods if Moscow was willing to unleash them. In that respect, he's threatening, well, he's, he's not only saying that, that he's loyal, but he's actually threatening the use of massive brutality even more massive brutality than is already being demonstrated, which is no small feat. But at the same time, he's using his language to, in, in effect, protect his men. He doesn't want them in the front line. He doesn't want to be taking casualties. Firstly, because obviously the Kadyrovci are the people who hold him in power, but also if more and more bodies started to come home, there is a risk that that would generate some kind of backlash against Kadyrov himself. So it's essentially performative, 
And whenever Moscow might be thinking about wondering what on earth these Chechen forces are actually meant to be doing in, in Ukraine, he basically creates another political furore. And this is the final sort of key point I, I'd want to make. This spat with Prigozhin was entirely convenient for him. Again, I would stress, I don't think in any ways it was because of some kind of secret deal or whatever. I just think he was waiting for an excuse. Whether it was Prigozhin, it would have been, if not him, it would have been someone else. Because there has been some suggestion that more forces ought to be being moved from Chechnya to the battlefield. And in particular, forces that Kadyrov raised saying they would be going to Ukraine, but which seem to have had some kind of unaccountable delay in actually being deployed, perhaps while they go through unit composition or flower arranging or whatever else. So just at the point when there's beginning to some sort of sense in Moscow that Kadyrov needs to make good on his promises, Kadyrov once again kicks up a fuss and I suspect this was intent of basically showing how disruptive he can be if he puts his mind to it. Now again, it's too early to see precisely how this plays out, but if past processes have been any kind of guide, then basically Kadyrov will you know, probably find some other reasons to, to take umbrage with other people at other times. And within a month or so, the talk in Moscow of bringing, trying to put some kind of pressure to bear on, on Chechnya will fall away because people think, frankly, it's just not worth the hassle. To close with a personal anecdote, uh, back when I was still travelling to Russia, I remember once being put up at the Presidential Hotel, uh, which is uh, very swish in that late Soviet, refurbed, post-Soviet Russian style, um, still has portraits of a variety of dictators who, who stayed there, up and such like. Anyway, the Presidential Hotel is notorious as being one of the, in effect, the headquarters of Chechen activities within Moscow. And in particular, Adam Delmikhanov, whom I previously mentioned, actually lives there. And, you know, along with his various, his staff, his hangers-on, his security and such like. And I mentioned his security because one, one morning I was there and I thought, oh, I'm feeling, a, you know, a little bit in need, need a bit of activity. It wasn't quite the weather to, to do much outside, so I will go to the gym. Stuck my head round the door and it was full of muscle-bound Chechens pumping iron to their heart's content. And I thought... Actually, maybe I'll go for a walk instead. And you'd see them heading off around Delimkhanov, no doubt feeling very cool in their black suits, their earpieces, their strangely bulging jackets and such like, as they went into, got into a succession of Mercedes G-wagons with, with flashing blue lights on the top. But once when I was watching one of these, again, really quite stylized and performative uh, departures, I just happened to exchange a glance with the Russian policeman who was outside. And, I mean, it was clear that he was absolutely not impressed. And so even here, although the Chechens have an astonishing and fearful reputation for the use of violence and for their determination, I can't help thinking that in some ways this may be a reputation which to a degree has outlived its accuracy. Back in the days of the Chechen war, the heyday of the Russian Chechen mafia, that may be all have been the case. Now, though, I don't know. I mean, this notion that they are killers or poseurs, or perhaps both,
is, I think, one we're going to have to go back to. And particularly because at some point there will be some kind of a challenge to the status quo in Chechnya. It may be a resurgence of terrorism. I suspect it's more likely to be that as the Russian economy continues to grind down, it will be harder and harder even for Kadyrov to maintain the same levels of financial assistance, especially if the war is still going on. And that could well have a catastrophic impact on the local economy and also a little bit more covertly on the political economy of Kadyrov's regime. So at some point, I think we can expect renewed reasons to be interested in Chechnya. And when it comes down to it, then we will see whether these indomitable tough guys have got, well, I hesitate to say a little bit fat and lazy, but perhaps they have got a little bit too accustomed to their status and not having to prove their violence. Closing factoid, something that I always thought was so fascinating was precisely that Chechen organized crime had such a reputation for willingness to use violence, very high levels of capacity with the use of violence, and above all, a willingness to basically fight to the very bitter end. And as a result of that, interestingly enough, when it was tabulated, Chechen organized crime gangs were less likely to actually become involved in gang wars because others, people who might well have been willing to try and fight a rival Russian gang or whatever else, when it was the Chechens, they think, ah, no, it's not even worth trying. Let's make a deal. So the Chechen reputation was actually often not tested. What happens in the underworld can, after all, also sometimes give us hints about what could happen in the upper world. But anyway, enough about Chechens for now. Thank you very much for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>